Did you look at your Spotify wrapped thing? Oh, yeah, I did. My So it's pretty sad. My number one listened to song yeah. was The Daily Mail by Radiohead. Okay. Which is an incredibly depressing song about how bullshit Rupert Murdoch's media like, <laughs> machine is. And then everything after that was just a combination of Hamilton or Hadestown. Yeah, wow. For like the next 20 songs. Yeah. But as I when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, how much did I listen to this very depressing yeah. Radiohead song? That it beat out Hamilton and Hadestown. Mine was all stuff we'd been doing for cabarets and things. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, mine wasn't even that. Oh, sorry. My top five were all Stephen Schwartz. Oh. And you know how it tells you which artist you're in like the top 2% or whatever of listeners yeah. in? Mine was I was in the top 0.5% of Once on This Island Storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Josephine. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Quite well. We've got some blue mood lighting in the room today. Yes. What I love about today's lighting is that it is just one colour. Yeah, often it's kind of like a, yeah, a gradient, like, yeah, a bunch like of different colours. Yeah. yeah, they're like mood states, if you will. But, but today's is just, lighting just is just block, a like, kind of it's like a sky blue, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice. It's very chilled. Thank you, Andrew. Um, welcome everyone to My Favourite Musical, the podcast. Yes, welcome. That's Ruth. That's Josephine. Yes, we will be talking you through this episode. (laughs) It's a podcast where we talk to you about musicals that we like. Yeah. That's pretty much it, right? I think that's good. Yeah. I've been listening to so much You're Wrong About that I've been thinking about taglines. Yeah. There's not really a different tagline we can do for every episode like they do. No. Ours is just... Here's, here's one of our favourite musicals. We have a cold open, though, <laughs> which is just us talking shit before we start recording. That has no relevance to... And never any relevance because, to the actual show. Actually, I don't think we've ever talked about the cold open before, but generally, like, Ruth and I, who are we're obviously very close friends, we just like to chat a bit before we start, just to warm ourselves up, and it's just Andrew then chooses a part of our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and chucks it at the chucks beginning. Chucks it in. <laughs> yeah. So that's what that was, if you're listening for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ruth, what do we do here? What's the thing? Well, we eventually we will talk to each other about some of our favourite shows. Right. But to begin with, we have some little segments that we do. Oh, yeah. You did like a move then? I like did. a dance move? A little dance in my seat. Segment with your shoulders. Um, the first one is whether we have any apologies. From... I do not. No, I do not either. Good. Um, do you have a spotlight for the week? I do. I've actually mentioned this website before, but it's just such an excellent resource. Um, it's got all these just amazing information and essays that fit in perfectly with our spotlight segment. So I want to link, I'm going to link it to you in the show notes, but it's called Howl Round. Um, Howl like a, like a, a wolf howls, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And howl round refers to like feedback from a, from a speaker. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. It's like the other name oh, cool. for, yeah, for feedback. Uh, so yeah, howl round. Oh gosh, it's amazing. Um, I've used it as a resource here countless times. It's a free open platform that amplifies disruptive ideas about theatre. Yeah. So they just have so many excellent contributors. So like anyone can publish on there? Well, I think you just have to like go through a process. Yeah. Like submit whatever. Yeah. And they're all, the people 
who do have their essays published on there are highly credentialed, yeah. very intelligent people who have some sort of expertise in their field, in yeah. the theatre. Um, you can actually subscribe to them to get regular updates and it's really worth it. Like I said, the contributors are varied and they're just so knowledgeable on their particular topics. Like today I read a really good article about, well, it was an essay on like sort of the emergence of trans theatre and how important it is and and sort of like some of the challenges that that trans theatre as like a sub-genre is facing. Yeah. Um, and that was really interesting. Yeah, so get on it. Yeah. Pound round. Awesome. Yeah. What's your spotlight? My spotlight, I'm going to talk to you about a amazing black performer whose name is Diane Carroll. Ooh. Yeah, so I'll discuss this in my recommendations as well, but I've been reading one of the untold stories of Broadway books, which I've mentioned before, recommended yes, on have. the podcast um, by an awesome um, theatre historian, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. And um, so this name kind of kept coming up in one of the books that I was reading and, I, and I'd always, I'd sort of known the name, but not like really known a lot of her history. So I was like, oh, well, that's a good, you know, thing to focus on. So essentially she was kind of like a proper leading lady in the way that we know them today, you know, across stage and screen. But the fact that she was a black woman, you know, in the 50s and 60s when this was the case was just she was like a total pioneer kind of thing. So she was in the film adaptations of Carmen Jones and Porgy and Bess in the 50s. And she was the very first black woman to win the Best Leading Actress in a Musical Tony Award in 1962 for No Strings. Mm. Um, She was the lead in the NBC sitcom Julia from 1968 to 1971 and was nominated for an Emmy and won a Golden Globe for Best Actress, um, becoming the first black woman to win um, a Golden Globe for like a non-stereotypical role. So previously it had only been won by black people, women playing like domestic servants essentially. Um, She was nominated for an Oscar in 1974 for the film Claudine and she later joined the cast of Dynasty and Grey's Anatomy when she was older. Um, In total in her lifetime she was nominated for five Emmy Awards and three Golden Globes and she also had long relationships with um, like romantic relationships with Sidney Poitier and the TV host David Frost, you know, like Frost Nixon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting as well. But, yeah, she passed away in October last year at the age of 84 and, um, yeah, just like an amazing pioneering black woman in the in on literally both stage and screen. But, yeah, just like a really – Oh, yeah. Incredible performer. I just, like, Googled her and she's, like, I recognise her face. Yes, exactly. And, um, yeah, so, like, the name kind of kept coming up, but I guess it happened to be that the shows that she was associated with weren't so much shows that – like, you know, that we've covered on the on the podcast or anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't yeah. know much about No Strings, to be honest. It's that Richard – we actually talked about it maybe even last week on the How to Succeed episode because it was nominated in the same in the year. In the same time, yes, And I think yes. he – so Richard Rogers wrote – it was this one he wrote without after Hammerstein's death. Yeah, that's um, right. So I think he won best score for it, but it didn't – How to Succeed won best musical that year. So Yeah, wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That was good. Thank you. No worries. Uh, okay, we then talk about Theatre Explained. Indeed. What is our topic for today? Well, we're going to talk about the Tony Awards. Oh. Yeah. That's a bit different. I know. I love it. Yeah. So um, the Tony Awards, the full name of the award is the Antoinette Perry Award for Excellence in Broadway Theatre. Hmm. That's a bit of more of a mouthful than Tony Awards, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so the awards were founded by Brock Pemberton. 
Sounds like a made-up name. Doesn't but okay. it? Okay. And they're named after, as we said, Antoinette Perry, who like her nickname was Tony. Um, she was an actress, producer, and theater director who was co-founder and secretary of the American Theater Wing. Mm. Um, and when you get given the trophy, it consists of a medallion with a face portraying an adaptation of the comedy and tragedy masks mounted on a black base with a pewter swivel. Mm, mm. A pewter swivel. Nice. Do you want to talk about anything well, about the history? I, as of 2014, there were 26 categories of awards. Yeah. Um, in addition to several special awards. But when it first, when the Tony Awards first started in 1947, there were only 11 awards. And like they weren't even... That it wasn't like best or no, anything or they were like quite most. Yeah. yeah, so it was kind of just like awards recognizing, which is like the drama desks, I think, is still like that, where it's yes. just honoring excellence. So I think like in the first year, two people were honored for choreography, for example. Yeah. Well, understanding like 1947, it's not like we had a huge back catalogue of musical theater being performed. Yeah. And we've talked about this before that now there are a lot more categories because we just have a lot more stuff. Exactly. Um, I thought this is interesting for the specific Tony Awards that are presented to like a Broadway production, awards are given to the author and up to two of the producers get like the statuette yeah. free of charge. Yeah. But all of the other members, like of the like production team, yeah, the other producers are eligible to purchase. That's right. The special award, the actual physical award. So here we go. Uh, the award cost about four hundred dollars as of two thousand. Yeah. Um, it was about seven hundred and fifty dollars at in two thousand and nine. As of two thousand and thirteen, it's been around two and a half thousand dollars. <gasps> oh my goodness! That you have to pay for the actual. Physical statue. I bet they all do, though. I'm, I mean, I would. Yeah. I would love to buy one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, a, that's cool. And the, so the first time the Best Musical Award was given out wasn't until the third Tony Awards. Yeah. And that was to Kiss Me Kate. Yeah. So that was technically the first musical to win Best Musical. Yeah. Um, it's mostly been held at Radio City Music Hall since the year 2000 with mm. a couple of years at the Beacon Theatre, I think, in between. But for years it was in different hotels, wasn't it? Did you see yeah. like the first one was at the Waldorf Astoria? Yeah. Uh, held on April 6th, 1947. Yeah. At the Waldorf Astoria. And it's presented by the American Theatre. Wing and the Broadway League. So the Broadway League is like the trade organization organization for Broadway. So its members are like theater owners and operators, producers, presenters, general managers. And then the American Theater Wing is just kind of an organization that supports the theater. Yeah. It has all these like like programs that it runs yeah. and things like that. And the Tonys are like part of that. Yeah. Um, and it, the awards got their nickname Tonys during the ceremony itself when Pemberton handed out an award and called it a Tony, like referring to the nickname of Antoinette Perry. That's fantastic. And yeah, so that's cool. I find that very interesting. Yeah. And she – oh, just so by the way, so Perry – like helped found and was chairwoman and secretary of the American Theatre Wing. That's sort of. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, thank you for telling us twice, Ruth. <laughs> just in case we're so dumb we didn't hear it. But yeah, that's hence. And she just previously, she died just before it, right? Like that was kind of. Yes, I think so. It was, it was like more a like commemoration. In, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. This has been Theatre Explained. Indeed. Do you have any recommendations? I do. So I mentioned the Untold Stories of Broadway. So I recommended these before, but I realised not that long ago that so when you buy them on Kindle, they come in two parts because they're quite long books. Yeah. And you have to buy part one and part two separately. And I realised that for so there's three volumes out. So the Untold Stories of Broadway, they go through all the different Broadway theatres. So like each long chapter is on a theatre. So like a chapter on 
the Majestic Theatre kind of it's thing. Amazing. And it goes, it's kind of like an oral history of that so theatre. So much work. Yeah. And so, like, there's just, like, hundreds and hundreds of interviews that she's conducted. And it's kind of people's, like, own stories of those theatres and what they've heard. And, you know, maybe they saw a show there when they were a kid or, mm. or it's one that they've done a show in. And it's it's not just actors and directors and producers. It's, like, you know, like, like Tony Massey, who works for us, who, like, sells merch at Fandom, like, he's in the book, yeah, you know, right. like, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, stage doorman and, yeah. you know, all that sort Crew of thing. Well, so, yeah. um, so I discovered that for volume three, which came out a few years ago now, I'd only purchased volume one and not purchased volume two. Oh, no. And it was, it was only that when we were doing Phantom, I realised – and Majestic Theatre was in volume two. You didn't have – And I, did, I, I often will, like, go back and refer to it yeah. and just see if there's any, you know, interesting stories. And I realised I didn't have it. So, yeah, I, I bought it recently and have been reading it. Nice. But um, I believe she's written volume four, like she's compiled volume four, like, during COVID. So it should hopefully come out next year sometime. That's cool. Yeah, so that's exciting. So that that's one of them. I'm going to re-recommend the Untold Stories of Broadway. Love it. Series. And the other is a YouTube clip that I'm going to link to called The Overture of overtures and it's a bunch of West End musicians got together to make a big sort of you know symphony orchestra and someone has sort of arranged this overture which is like from some of the the you know world's greatest musical overtures plus music that like from shows say that don't have overtures like Hamilton and Cabaret and stuff like that so it's just like the ultimate medley exactly (laughs) but it's really fun and they've done a good job of it so I'm gonna link to that as well yeah I haven't seen that yeah it's good fun love it yeah my thank you no worries my recommendation this week we have mentioned it before but I need you all right now to watch the NPR Tiny Desk concert of the of Hamilton um Hamilton Hadestown yeah Oh, my God. I was watching it again this week because it's like, I don't know, it sort of calms me down. It's yeah. 26 minutes of just pure joy. Yes. And they are so good. So it's good. Such a good cast. I love those Tiny Desk concerts. How good are they? Yeah. I've, um, I don't know if you've seen, but like during COVID, it's been like Tiny Desk from home. Oh, okay. So I haven't seen these, any of them. Yeah, there's all these um, artists who are doing their Tiny Desk concert from home. Yeah. Which is really cool. That's awesome. But yeah, I love the whole series. But yeah, watch the Hadestown one because like Andre De Shields is in there. Just I also highly so recommend good. the Lizzo one. Oh, yes. Yes, she's so good. Yeah. Uh, It's just such a great concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I'm all about that. So, yeah, yeah, that's, I'll link to that. That is the NPR Tiny Desk concert of Hadestown. Awesome. Mm. Should we talk about some shows? Yes. You're up first. Whoa. (laughs) Here I go. Ruth, I want to tell you about the mystery of Edwin Drew. Yes. I say that. I actually don't know this show particularly well. I've never seen it. Really? Yeah, I know some of the songs. Interesting. Um, I would love to see it. I think you would love this show. Yeah, I think I would too. Yeah. I love the concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wish I'd seen that revival a few years ago. Oh, I know, right? Shit. Okay, here we go. I actually don't know how this came to my world. Mm. And that seems to be like a bit of a theme lately. What I think... Is that here's what I did when I was a teenager. I like collected and coveted cast recordings. Yeah. And so I think this is probably just one of them that I collected and that I listened to and just fell in love with. Um, that's how I fell in love with shows when I was a kid. And yeah. That, that was like my currency at the time. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure this was one of them. And I probably just had like so a So you've loved coffee. it for a long time. A long time. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It's not something that's come to you in adulthood. No. No. No, definitely no. I've always loved it. Um, I've never seen it either though. Yeah. But I've like, I've watched a lot of clips and yeah, yeah I know this, you know, the music back to front, but um, 
I've also read the book, but which I'll talk about. But anyway, um, so the mystery of Edmund Drood is also known as Drood, and that's how I shall henceforth refer to it. Yeah. Um, it was written by Rupert Holmes and is based on the unfinished Charles Dickens novel of the same name. Mm. So before I get into the musical background, I want to give you some novel background. So like most of his other books, Charles Dickens' novels were published episodically, right? Yeah. So this was no different. He um, And the way that it did work at the time, most of his other books were released in 20 parts. Yeah. Um, that was just pretty standard sort of length for him. But Drood was planned to be made up of 12 episodes. Right. The like book it was, was shorter than a usual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was supposed to be released from April 1870 until February 1871. But after publishing six instalments, Charles Dickens died suddenly of a stroke and had actually left no plans or hints or anything as to what was going to happen in the oh, book. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just like nothing. There was yeah. no reference to what was going to happen. Yeah. And Do you think he hadn't written the rest of it? Well, I think so. Yeah. Because like, as I was thinking about this episodic sort of publishing thing, it's perfect for a person like me, like a procrastinator <laughs> to be like, it's fine. I've got a year. Yeah. Like, I'll just write this installment and see what happens. Like uh, it's just amazing. But also think about reading a book over a year and a half yeah. or whatever. Yeah, crazy. Um, so, yeah, Charles Dickens died and just left no no information about what would happen. And the major frustration here is that the book is a literal mystery, so it is called The Mystery yeah. of Edwin no Drew. No one but, knows the answer. Well, but Edwin Drew, the character, disappears at, like just before the, the instalments finish and so we just don't know what was supposed to be the resolution of the yeah. mystery because you, you like meet this character Edwin Drood and you like meet all the surrounding players and then Edwin Drood goes missing and then bam that's it yeah we don't know anything more it's pretty full-on um so almost immediately after Charles Dickens died lots of people tried to complete the story including Dickens' own son. It's become sort of a source of fascination for many, like authors and filmmakers have been quite a few film adaptations and like lots of different iterations of it. And it's still like even now people are still trying to write like finished versions of it. Yeah. Um, so and obviously including this wonderful musical. So unlike the novel, which is obviously very Dickensian, it's very bleak, like it's, <laughs> you know, everyone is quite awful, the characters yes. are awful. The musical dour. Yeah, dour is right. This yeah. musical is incredibly lighthearted. Okay. And it's modelled on the popular form of theatre at the time of Dickens' death, pantomime. Yeah. So here's the plot of the show. I do miss quite a few bits because it's it's a pantomime, so there's lots going on, but I'm sure you all know the formula of a pantomime. Basically, the fourth wall is broken from the very beginning. The actors introduce themselves and the chairman is a character, opens the proceedings. We meet the character John Jasper, who is like an evil choir master type, and his young nephew, Edward and Drood. Drood is engaged to Jasper's musical pupil and also the object of Jasper's dangerous obsession. Her name is Rosa Budd. And we also meet like a kindly reverend and the mysterious and exotic siblings, Helena and Neville Landless. And Neville, it becomes besotted with Rosa. So you've got this like beautiful woman uh, who everyone is a, just loves and there's just you like, like you've got your priest and the person, I can't remember where um, the siblings come from. It's some sort of exotic land. Like, right. I don't know, Sri Lanka or something. I, yeah. I can't even remember. 
So we are then taken to a seedy opium den in London run by Princess Puffer and it's attended, so an attendant of the opium den is Jasper and we sort of meet a stonemason whose name is Dirtles and his deputy. So these are like the cast of players. Jasper brings them all together with a Christmas Eve house party where Drood mysteriously vanishes. Six months pass and a strange sort of... um, private investigator has arrived to investigate Drew's disappearance and no one sort of knows where this character has come from or who they are. The chairman then announces in literally mid-song in what is I think one of the greatest Mm. uh, moments of musical theatre then announces that this is the point where Charles Dickens stopped writing. And so oh, right. In the musical it's like mid-song. The actors all just sort of like tail off and the chairman goes, this is where the novel finished, <laughs> which is really clever. Um, and so, yeah, then from that moment on, the audience have to decide what happens next. And what then happens is really genius. So the audience have to vote on the identity of the murderer and the PI. And depending on who is voted for, alternative things can happen. So each potential murderer and PI have songs or explanations to perform in the event that they are chosen. And then in order to have a happy ending, the audience then has to vote on a couple to have a happily ever after. So they just vote on two people to get together at the end. And then whoever is chosen, they sing a romantic duet. Hilarious. At the very end, it's revealed that Edward and Drood is actually alive. Um, and that's the end of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super cool. Yeah. So some background. Um, Rupert Holmes, whose name is actually David Goldstein. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. had. So Rupert Holmes had found success as a songwriter and a recording artist. He's actually known for the Pina Colada song. Yes, I think I did know that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's a funny little fact. Yeah, he also had written like a whole bunch of songs that Barbara Streisand performed. Yeah. So like a pretty, you know, successful dude. Um, so anyway, he's English and he'd grown up on a diet of pantomimes. Right. So after he performed this cabaret, like he had a one-man show in, in 1983, he was encouraged to create a musical by the producer Joe Papp and his wife. Oh, right. Yeah, so they just were like, you should you should do a musical. Like, because apparently his cabaret was sort of like cool new songs and then lots of patter and like hilarious anecdotes or whatever. Yeah. So they were like, off you go, write a musical. So he settled on an adaptation of Drood. He was like, mm. sure, yeah, I love this story and I think I could make it work. And he was right. He was incredibly inspired by British pantomime and musical theatrical traditions, which obviously were relevant at the time of Charles Dickens, but also still is a thing like in regional England. Yeah, like pantomimes are still a really big deal. Massive. Yeah. Um, the fact that like lots of places can't have their Christmas pantos this year is a big has deal. been a massive deal in yeah. Britain. Yeah. That's, that's like an, it's an institution. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the pantomime styles and the musical sort of traditions really featured audience participation as a major component. Um, there was like slapstick and sort of risque comedy and the principle, the, like the existence of a principal boy, which is like a young male protagonist played by a female actor. Yes. And those are all just sort of tropes in yeah. pantomime. Like puss in boots. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Peter Pan, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. To an extent. Yes. Yeah. So Rupert Holmes created the character of the chairman to fit in the style of the pantomime. So the chairman is basically like the master of ceremonies. Yeah. Um, and then wrote the character of Edwin Drood to be played by a woman in male drag to fit within the pantomime um, trope or yeah. genre or whatever. He also consciously decided that the character, the characters would be actors in a musical playing Dickens characters. So he wanted it to be a show within a show so that the, the here are the characters. They're clearly like – 
they're actors doing their job. They're playing these characters. Yeah. And he wanted that to be really clear, which I think is a really cool, yeah. Like layer. Yeah. Obviously because of the nature of the audience voting device, Holmes had to write numerous short endings for every possible voting outcome. Yes. And there are lots of different outcomes. Like there are lots of characters. So yeah. this is actually like he had to write a lot of stuff. So the first draft of the show went for three and a half hours. Holmes actually performed at solo for Joe Papp who offered to produce the show as part of the New York Shakespeare Festival, which I think is also called, what is it, like Shakespeare Outside? or Shakespeare in the Park? Shakespeare in the yeah, Park, that's the, it. Yeah, like in Central Park. I don't but know why it's not called Shakespeare Outside. That's such a sexy, <laughs> sexy title. Yeah, there's that beautiful theatre in Central Park called the Delacorte Theatre. Yeah, which is exactly oh, where it played. Cool, yeah. So as part of the New York Shakespeare Festival, um, Drude happened and Joe Pappard said, like, if it goes well, we'll transfer it straight away to Broadway. Yeah. So the show premiered at the Delacorte Theatre on August 21st, 1985, after only three weeks of rehearsals. The festival ended on September the 1st and a Broadway run was planned immediately, retaining the original cast. Um, A lot of editing happened before Drude opened on Broadway at the Imperial Theatre on December 2nd, 1985, but that's still an incredibly quick turnaround. So it it was apparently like around a three-hour show at Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. And then they had to massively edit it, obviously. Yeah. And then it opened on Broadway like three months later. Yeah. Big deal. Um. So about halfway through the run, the name of the show was officially shortened to Drude, which is still what it is licensed under. Okay, right. But it's not always referred to as that. Like people still call it the mystery of Edwin Drude. I think I prefer the mystery of Edwin Drude. So do I. Especially in the marketing. Definitely. Because of the book and everything. I get that like Drude is just easier to say. Yeah, like. You can it's not really it sort that. of it doesn't really typify what it is, I no. think. So well, like for example, the latest revival was called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, that production, so the original Broadway production ran for six hundred and eight performances and twenty-four previews, right. closing in May nineteen eighty seven. Yeah. Um, Graciela, uh, Graciela, oh, Graciela Daniel, Daniel yeah. was the original choreographer who oh, cool. we've, we've spoken about her yeah. before. So that production was a huge success. It was nominated for nine Tony Awards at the 1986 Tonys, and yep. it won four, including Best Musical, Best Book, Best Performance by Leading Actor, and Best Direction. Yeah. Um, it also dominated the Drama Desk Awards that year. Like, it was just a really, really popular show. Yeah. Um, there was then a US tour, like, pretty much immediately after the show closed on Broadway, and it also opened on the West End in 1987 at the Savoy Theatre to great success. Yeah. It's had... A ton of productions, yeah, and it's really popular for amateur societies. I bet, yeah. Like it's just a it's a well known genre. It's easy to trot out. Um, the most notable production I want to talk about is the Roundabout Theatre Company's 2012 revival presented at Studio 54. Yeah. So you missed this one, did you? Yeah, like that's not a time in which I was sort of going to yeah. America yet. Yeah. Such a bummer. So that production starred Cheetah Rivera. Yes. And Stephanie J. Block, and it was excellent by yeah. all accounts like just sensational um you can listen to that cast recording on spotify and in fact the original cast recording is not on spotify but okay. it is available in the world um but yeah i've linked to the to the revival because it's so good yeah it was such a good cast like i think um betsy wolf's in there oh, who else well because it's an ensemble cast there's yeah heaps, but there's it, like it's just everyone's incredible yeah everyone's incredible um 
I think it was a scandal that although the revival was nominated for five Tonys, it didn't win any. Yeah. Like I think Stephanie J. Block was was robbed. Well, I think we've talked about this before, but when she eventually won for the Share Show a couple of years or like last year, it was like atonement. For it all was the, it was atonement for a lot of like. Yeah, like a lot of the a other years mistakes. in which she didn't win. Yeah. yeah. Well, to not win for this falsettos. and falsettos is yeah. just like, what the hell? Yeah. So the reason it didn't win the Best Revival Tony that year, that was the Pippin Revival year. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, which is, yeah, I think I think the reason, like knowing that Pippin Revival is that the Revival of Drew didn't really do anything particularly different. Different, yeah. It also didn't really need to do anything yes, different. Like yeah. I think Pippin needed an overhaul. Exactly. And it got a really good overhaul. Yeah. But Drew didn't need yes. that. Like it's already a great show. Yeah. So I think everyone was just surprised to enjoy Pippin for the first <laughs> time ever. So there we go. Um, okay, so some fun facts. Rupert Holmes wrote the book, the music, the lyrics and the complete orchestrations for the show. Oh. And it's interesting because like when I, when you read about it, some people say that he's like one of the he's the only one to do it on Broadway. Oh, and then because oh, of the orchestration. Yeah, well, like obviously we know a lot of Father Son Holy Ghost yeah. musicals, but this is like also the complete. I feel like you're really into Father Son Holy Ghost musicals. You've done quite a few. I have, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, you have. I'm all about extreme talent, <laughs> but. I find I found it really hard to find if there were many other people who'd done all of those things. Mm. So if you out there know if there are more, please let me know because that's that to me seems like such a unique combination. Yeah, that really like he owns the entire thing. It's all him. Yeah. You know, wow. Um, so this was the first musical to ever include audience participation in the form of voting for an outcome. I bet. Yeah, yeah. and. Has there been another one since? Like, do we have any other musicals? Well, not where the ending changes. Yeah. No, yeah. It's just such a cool – it's like Choose Your Own Adventure. Yeah, it's awesome. Live in theatre. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but Choose Your Own Adventure was totally my jam when oh, I was a kid. yes. Like oh, the number yes. of Goosebump Choose Your Own Adventure yep. books I had. Holy I shit. I am right there with you. Oh, the frustrating thing I imagine about seeing Drood, because when I would read those Choose Your Own Adventure books – I would, like, choose one and read it and they'd be like, okay, now I choose another one. Exactly. So I would be really frustrated. You'd want to come every night. Exactly. I'd be like, but, but can I just see the alternatives? a little bit like that? We've Like, I loved that when we did Spelling Bee. That loved that. The, the way the audience participation worked is that the show really could turn out quite different each night. Yeah, and I, I suppose the difference with Spelling Bee is that it never affected the ending That's of right. the show. That's right, exactly. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't choose a murderer no. for you. Like, <laughs> But yeah, uh, I don't know. In my head, I think, oh, I love the concept, but that would it would not satisfy me. I'd want to know all the potential yeah. endings because, like, each of the characters has like a different. If they're chosen to be the murderer, they have like a different motivation yeah. for why or how it actually happened. It's yeah, it's just funny. Anyway, yeah. I love the idea. Um, so another fun fact: it's never actually stated in the original novel whether Edwin Drood is murdered or if he just disappears. So, like, because. Because Charles Dickens died so so soon, yeah, we don't know. Like we know that the character disappeared, but we don't know whether he was going to show up murdered. Yeah, or like, like he comes back in the show, but yeah. that's that's not necessarily no. Yeah, because we just don't know. Like it's yeah. never because it never gets to the part of the novel where you find out that he was murdered or if he ran away or no one knows. Yeah. So I sort of love that fitting in with that pantomime genre. Rupert Holmes is like, ah, oh, just bring him back. Yeah, he comes back at the he end. He comes back. It'll make sense. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> um, 
the music of uh, so I was listening to the soundtrack or soundtrack the cast recording again today and just reminding myself about how good the music is of this show yeah. but it's so typical of the genre in yes. a way that is comforting yeah like you it actually feels like because we when I was at school we did all these like like second rate musicals yeah. that were like no one had ever heard of them before. But they, they were, were cheap to put on They were or cheap whatever. to put on but they were all like in the same style. But it was familiar because you were like, I know I know exactly who all these characters are. You're just plonking them yep. in a different like some sort of racist setting. <laughs> it always was. It was like Egypt or, yeah. or Arabia or whatever. Yeah. But like you knew the music was all so familiar and I think that's part of the beauty with Drood. Yes. It's like you you know as soon as you see the character what trope they are representing or what like, you know, stock character they are and then you'll know what type of song they're going to sing and, yep. and like the sort of lyrics that they're going to bring out and that's cool. Yeah. There are a few surprises I think okay. in the music. So in for my gateway songs I've chosen the very first one I think should be Two Kinsmen which okay. is like. A very early song sung by our evil character Jasper and Edwin Drood because they're related, but it's like the awesome Stephanie J. Block and it's just a really good like, we're men. Yes. And it's funny because one of them is a woman yeah. dressed as a man, so it's hilarious. Um, I also think you should listen to Wages of Sin, which has got like, it's, it's Cheetah Rivera, it's that character and she's just like almost like a Mrs. Lovett type character. Right. Like just a bit bawdy and, um, but there's audience participation of it in it and it's got that like sea shanty sort of feel. Yes. So you feel like you've heard the song a million times. Yeah. It's really great. But my favourite song from the show and I think the most surprising is the Moonfall Quartet. Oh, okay. So it's just fucking beautiful harmonies. Right. So the women sing it. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, super close beautiful harmonies. Yeah. So unexpected because it doesn't fit in what you imagine the show is. Yeah. And it's just super pretty. Yeah, right. Yeah, so those are my three gateways. You could actually just listen to any of the show yeah. though, like pick up a song and you'd be like, ooh, what's this exotic character? Or like the the main thing I know from it yeah. is the last note of the writings on the wall. Yes. Which um I think I read a story once about how because it was Betty Buckley in the original, right? Yeah, correct. And um and I think she just did it in like took it up, like optioned up in rehearsal once. They're like, you're gonna have to do that every show. And she was like, that's fine. Yes. And now like then of course Stephanie J. Block had to do it in yeah. the thing, and it's just this massive note. It's, it's a huge it's note. It's really impressive. There's a good clip on YouTube actually of her doing it, and it's just a great number. And yeah. she's just so good. Oh, my God. I, I'll link to that, actually. I'll link to her doing that because it's so good. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That was Drew. I, re- I really would love to see that show. I think it would be super fun to watch and also do. To put on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would love to. <laughs> Every week, Josephine and I, like, we'll research a show and they'll be like, can we do this show? Should we do it happens. It happens every, almost every week. Literally every week. Yeah. <laughs> Shane's still talking about ragtime from whatever I did it like yeah. two weeks ago. He's like, could we do ragtime? I'm like, but did you listen when I said that it's not a successful show? Like you can't put it on. It's so expensive. It's <laughs> such a big cast. It's such a huge orchestra. And he's like, but can we do it? <laughs> Couldn't we try? I actually oh, think you'd dear. be a really good, um, oh, here's the character I'm thinking of. You'd be a really good puffer, Princess oh, Puffer. Oh, cool. I, 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 the chick who runs the opium den. Excellent. Well, I should run an opium down. So you that's should. Yeah. So, Ruth, what do you want to tell me about? Today, I'm I actually going don't to... know. Do you really? I actually don't. I've okay. Say, I'm talking to you about a little show called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm actually glad I didn't know about oh, that. Oh, she's so sad, everyone. <laughs> um, you need to just, you know, get okay. with the program, okay. Josephine. I so, just realised I don't have my percussion in front of me. It's <laughs> a to, to shake. So I can't even demonstrate You can't, you can't my... even demonstrate your disappointment mm. in me. So I mentioned in our Jesus Christ Superstar episode that I had both Superstar and Joseph on cassette yeah. when I was a kid and I listened to them both incessantly on my Walkman like all <laughs> through my childhood. Like those were my two big shows, you yeah. know, when I was a kid. Um, this is probably pre me being obsessed with Into the Woods, I think. This yeah. is like because I know I had Into the Woods on CD, so that's how I know it was pre Into the Woods. I had these on cassette. Do you know, I think I had I had like this cassette book. It was like, you know those um, – yeah. Uh, and it was big. It was like bigger than A4. And so when you opened it, there were like 16 tapes in there. Yeah. And I had. And it opens up. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So it's like two sides and they're yeah. all like stuck in plastic. Yes. But I had. I think I had, it was all Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like oh, really? I had really? Joseph, I had Jesus Christ. Probably Cats. Cats. Yeah. And there was just like Baby something Phantom. else random. I think you said you had Phantom on cassette. Yeah, I think in I the had Phantom. Yeah. yeah. Why so, did I have that? So I also saw the show in Sydney probably in 1993. Ooh, so I think it may young. have been my first professional show that I ever saw. Um, I'm pretty sure I, st- I still Do have, you remember it? I still have my program. Um, Yeah, I do vaguely remember it. It actually made me really happy doing the research um, this week because I didn't think I'd ever been to what was Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney. Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, because it was demolished in the early 2000s. And and I, yeah, discovered that this is where Joseph was. And and I did go and see it there. Wow. And so, yeah, that just made me really happy because that's a theatre that a lot of people I know who are a bit older than us have some really happy memories of that theatre. And you're a completionist. Exactly, I am. And so the fact – I just assumed – I always assumed I'd never been there because I have no memory of it. Um, and, yeah, so discovering that I went there was – was made my nerd brain very happy this That's week. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely, like, have a few issues with the show that I will discuss, but unlike my experience rediscovering Starlight Express a few episodes <laughs> ago, I still think this show is full of bangers. I think it is a great show for kids to do with – a few changes. Yeah. Um, but I really do. I still believe that it's got a great score and all that sort of thing. It has held up for me. I was still dancing around the room a lot this Interesting. week. Yeah. Good on you. So um, music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Tim Rice, the the classic team. What a team. So this was technically. When they're just teenagers. Yeah. So technically actually not the first musical they ever wrote together. Hmm. So the, it was the first performed of yeah. theirs. So they wrote a show called The Likes of Us together in 1965, but it wasn't actually performed publicly until 2005. That was technically their first show they wrote. So it is based on the coat of many colors story of Joseph from the Bible's book of Genesis. And so basically we start off with a narrator character who sings a a prologue to us, introducing that they're going to be telling us a story of a boy, uh, basically a tale of a dreamer. That's sort of how it's set up to us. And then the story that we get told. So Joseph lives with his father, Jacob, and his 11 brothers of who he is by far the favourite um, which of his fathers, which his brothers really resent. And Jacob has just given his son a multicoloured coat, the aforementioned <laughs> Technicolor dream coat. Um, <laughs> Joseph also has these sort of fortune-telling dreams and he has dreamt and told his brothers that he's going to rule over them all one day. Um, he which sounds have, like a dick. Yeah, like he, well, I actually think it's actually played best as kind of a dick. Yeah. I actually think that's how it's best played. Um, so the brothers basically decide they're going to stop this by killing him but Good. end up 
I wish they were successful. (laughs) Instead, they end up selling him as a slave. They don't quite kill him, but they sell him as a slave instead. What is worse, I wonder? (laughs) So they tell Jacob, their father, that he's dead, that Joseph is dead, and basically pretend to be sad. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, Joseph's ability to prophesize dreams helps him work his way up um, to become the Pharaoh's right-hand man. Um, Joseph's brothers end up coming back to him to beg for food and he forgives them and gets his multicolored coat back and everyone is happy and sings a nine minute mega mix. And that's the entire story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like really. <laughs> yeah. It's a ripper. So I had not realized how long the timeline is from this show being written to its first professional or like to the version of it that we know now is kind of thing. Are you saying it's really long? Super long. Oh, wow. And I think this will be a total surprise to you too because I've kind of, I've known this show, like I said, my entire life and I didn't know a lot of the history of the show. So as I mentioned, Angela Webber and Tim Rice first start working together in 1965 when Tim Rice is 20 and Angela Webber is 17. Jesus. Um, They produce a a demo of their first show, The Likes of Us, but it fails to gain traction. It doesn't get produced. Um, So in the summer of 1967, a family friend of the Lloyd Webbers, who is the music teacher at the Collett Court School in London, commissions um, Lloyd Webber and Rice to write a piece for the school's choir. Hmm. Um, That piece was a 15-minute, what they kind of call a pop cantata. So, you know, cantata is like a piece, a sung composition, composition normally for a choir sort of thing and this is a a pop it's like pop music but that sort of thing so that was performed and that was joseph that they glee club yeah um but like one sort of story yeah um so that was performed at the school on march 1st 1968 and they do a second performance at lloyd webber's family church westminster Central Hall. Like that's the first version of Joseph. At his family church. <laughs> yeah, and the school that they get commissions right. So in the audience um, that night happened to be one of the children performing's parents, Derek Jewell, who was a Sunday Times music critic, and he reviews it in the newspaper. The amount of legs up that rich people get. Insane. Is Insane. Just I like... think they both come from fairly wealthy families. Of course they yeah. do. Ugh. So it's performed for a third time in November 1968 and by this stage the piece has been expanded to 35 minutes. Uh, That was at another church, I believe. And Decca Records releases a copy of that third performance and Novello publishes the lyrics and the sheet music. So by this stage it's a 35-minute piece, right? Um, They basically then go off and do Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Like we're now at that stage of their career. Wow, I did not know that. Yes, yeah. So it has its success and they use the popularity of of Superstar to launch Joseph in the United States as the follow-up show to Superstar. Are we pretending that Andrew Loeb actually did write Superstar? <laughs> Shut Are we up. living you know in that he world? Did. You know he did. I still don't believe it. So interestingly, like the first production in the US is just an amateur production. So in May 1970, it's done at the Cathedral College of the Immaculate Conception in <laughs> Queens, New York. Like that's the first production. That sounds like a fun place to be. Yes, doesn't it? <laughs> so we're now up to 1972. Mm-hmm. The show is done at the Edinburgh Festival and then in London, both by the Young Vic Theatre Company. And that production, still 35 minutes long, is recorded for an LP released by RSO mm-hmm. and broadcast on TV on Granada Television. I actually think the show should have remained 35 minutes long. <laughs> but not, be, not I'm not just being a shithead, but yeah. also like 35 minutes is the perfect amount of time That's for a That's a great length show, isn't That's it? It's awesome. Yeah. So it, th- this is when it, so it then transfers to the West End. So we're now up to like... 
1973 and they first wrote it in 1967. So we're already like six years in. Yeah, wow. So it, it, it transfers to the West End at the Albury Theatre, which is now called the Noel Coward Theatre, um, on the West End from February 1973 where it ran for 243 performances. And it was actually performed with another short piece hmm. entitled Jacob's Journey, which they also wrote. Um, was that their final name? Jacob's, Jacob's Journey. Journey. <laughs> Jesus. I don't, I don't know. Which I like I don't know much about really. Well, she, well Jacob's the father of Joseph. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, but like right, the actual okay. what was in that you show, don't know what I was don't in know. It, yeah. Um so from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty one, that's where we really get the final sort of modern version of the show. So long. Yeah, and it's performed with productions in regional Britain, in Ireland, and the United States. So it has an off-Broadway production at the Entermedia Theatre in 1981, and that transfers to Broadway at the Royale Theatre, which is now the Bernard B. Jacobs Theatre, on 27th of January 1982, running to 4th of September 1983. And that's really wow. like that's the show the now. show that we know now. Kind so that's of thing. really like its premiere. And I will say though, that's the show that we know now. It's not really the production that we know now yet, yes. though, right? Yes. It's still quite sort of it feels very 70s still, that production, yeah. and a bit more like hippy dippy sort of. Right. Um, so the original narrator on Broadway was Laurie Beachman. And the original Joseph was Bill Hutton. But notable Joseph replacements on Broadway were Andy Gibb, who was, you know, oh, the cool. little brother of the Bee Gees. Yeah. He died quite young, yes. quite tragically, like drug overdose or like from yeah. complications, I think, from drug use. Um, and David Cassidy of the Partridge family was also Joseph. Oh, my God. David Cassidy had done Blood Brothers as well. Yeah, like, that's right. What's with him doing? Yeah. yeah okay. So the show is then restaged in 1991 at the London Palladium with Jason Donovan as the lead. Mm. And that really We all remember that's that That's the version right? that we kind yeah. of know now, right? Yeah. So the cast album of that production is a huge hit. It spends two weeks at number one in the UK and the single Any Dream Will Do also spends two weeks at number one. If I never hear that song again, I will be happy. Shush you. <laughs> okay. It goes back to Broadway in 1993 playing 231 performances at the Minskoff Theatre. It's not as long as I thought it. Like none of these, I mean, I, I think honestly it's A, it's kind of more successful in the UK than it is in the US. Yeah. And B, it's also, I think we know it more as like a regularly performed kids show yeah. than, than yeah, like why would a I go successful see that? commercial mm. sort of show. Yeah. So it, um, in 1999 the direct-to-video film adaptation is made with Donny Osmond as Joseph, <laughs> uh, Maria Friedman as the narrator, Richard Attenborough as Jacob and um, Joan Collins as Mrs Potiphar. <laughs> um, it's had since on the West End in 2003 at the New London Theatre, 2007 at the Adelphi Theatre, which – um, by the way, starred Lee Mead, who had just run won the reality show Any Dream Will Do to play <laughs> Joseph. So that was, yeah, basically a, a te- that was the second, I think, musical theatre reality show they'd had in the UK. The first was The Sound of Music one, yeah, which I think was called How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria. Yeah. So this was the second one that they did. They've done quite a few in the UK. Um, it returned to the Palladium in the summer of 2019, which actually was due to also do a return season this year but has been delayed to 2021 because of COVID. Yeah. And Jason Donovan returned to that production but as the Pharaoh this time. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. So on And then on February 20th, um, 2020 there was a concert production produced in New York City as like a 50th anniversary production so directed by our love Michael Arden um, (laughs) and just listen to this cast so Noah Galvin was Joseph Um, three performers shared the role of the narrator Jessica Vosk Eden (gasps) Espinosa and Alex Newell shared the narrator yeah like so basically like 
two alphabas and, and Alex Newell, and Alex who Newell. would also be an incredible alphabet. Shit. Um, Merle Dandridge was Pharaoh, so like oh, a yeah, female Pharaoh. Yeah. yeah. Bonnie Milligan was Gad, one of the one of the Excellent brothers. Excellent choice. Michael Kilgore was Benjamin, <gasps> and Andy Carl and Orfe were Potiphar and Miss and Potiphar's wife. Oh shit! Right, like ridiculous cast. That is a ridiculous yeah. cast. Um, so some fun facts. So Technicolor in the title is spelt in the US spelling because it isn't the actual trademark of the Technicolor company. Yeah. And that, um, like, like the trademark appears when you write the full name of the show, you have to put the trademark for Technicolor yeah, in the wow. show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in several of the early productions of Joseph all the way through to really the modern version that we know, like when it goes to Broadway in the early 80s, the narrator's played by a man. Yeah. Like it's only really from the 80s onwards that, that a woman, that plays, a woman it. plays it. And I, that is insane to me. I cannot imagine a man playing that. Yes. Like just vocally it's so much yeah. more interesting with a woman. A hundred percent. It's just bizarre. Yeah, God. Um, so the show uses sort of musical pastiche or parody as a storytelling device for most of the major songs. So like there's a country song there's a french ballad there's yeah. an elvis type song there's a calypso song which we will discuss and so on and so forth yes um the show ends with a literal nine minute medley of songs we've just heard in the show um a, a massive Such mega a mix you either love end. it or hate it and i love it it's and a Josephine disgrace hates it. it's a fucking disgrace <laughs> so um let's talk about what um, definitely needs to change in the show for it sort of to continue being performed yes. um, in the modern time. So for me, the biggest issue, and I think people are generally recognizing it now, is the song Benjamin Calypso. Yes. So they've basically chucked a Calypso song or a song in Calypso style in just generally sung by a bunch of white boys. Yeah. Like that's sort of the idea. Um, it's also been that Benjamin is often sort of tokenly played by the one black person that they're putting in the show. Yeah. And also like he's the one they've pretended has stolen the golden cup in the, in the song. Yeah. Like there's even a lyric, Benjamin is honest as coconuts. Mm. It's like the whole thing is just really gross. Yeah. Um, so I think if you are going to do that show that's the thing you've really got to change yeah, you know and they, and they have been in sort of more modern productions i i don't know how far you can, i mean honestly like one of the biggest changes is just making sure your cast is really diverse mm. if nothing else yeah. you know um but yeah hmm. so the biggest thing that i sort of didn't realize is that the version that i would have listened to obsessively on cassette when i was a kid was actually fairly recent in the scheme of things like like when i re- realized like in my head, listening to that cassette, it's like, this is a really old show. You yeah. know, I knew it was like the yeah. first show he'd written and that sort of thing. But actually that production was probably only a couple of years old. That is actually tripping me out because I was the same. I just always yeah. knew that Joseph was old. Yeah. But I didn't realise that actually, well, it's not really even technically true. Like no. they just wrote a little bit of a thing yeah. that they then extrapolated a lot and, later. And just over time it became this, because now it's like two hours with an interval. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, is still short for a musical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I still appreciate that. Yes. But mostly it is like repro- like, like Any Dream Will Do didn't used to be at the beginning. You know how it now yeah. like it's like prologue, then Any Dream Will Do. Yeah. That didn't used to be at the beginning. Yeah. You know, obviously there's a nine-minute mega mix. All these things have been Why added. nine minutes though, really? I think just because they were adding time. It's just so stupid. Yeah. I hate so, it. So to me, this show only really works when it is done as like high, high camp. Yes. And I think it does work in that context. Yes. Yeah. And I – like that concert production at the beginning of this year, I bet was just over the top ridiculousness, and and that's where it works. I would watch works. a concert of this show. Yeah, would you? 
definitely. Yeah, you just think, well, and to be honest, that's kind of how people stage it most of the time. Yeah. I mean, not fully like that, but that's, that is really how people mm. do it. I also think you're right. This is a perfect show for children yes. to do. And that I appreciate that because I don't actually think there are that many great options for children. No, no. That, that are also appropriate for an audience of children, not yeah. just children performers. Yeah. But this show works really well with kids performing it. I agree. I agree. I think better than when adults perform it. Like, yeah. I really enjoy well, like teenagers, yeah. 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 Like yeah. like early high school, I think yeah, is I'm kind of the like perfect 14 age. Year olds, yeah, like 14-year-olds, like off you go, do Joseph. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think you can really have fun with it in those totally. ways. And I do think that the songs are legitimately really catchy. Yeah. Yeah, honestly. So um, I am also going to link to a clip of um, – this was from like we've talked about one of my favourite Instagram accounts, Let's Hear It for the Choice before. Yes. And it was – Oh, the narrator one. Yes. yes. It's this girl. Her name's Sharon Regis. It's her doing the song Pharaoh's Story. Yeah. And particularly listen to it from about a minute 30 in where she just like options up the hell out of it and just sings the absolute shit out of the end of this because, song. Because like that role's not hard enough and no. it doesn't have enough showing off happening. You've got to go further. It's ridiculous. I it's love so that. ridiculous. I I love it so much. So there's a there is actually quite a few different recordings available if you want to listen to them on Spotify. Some of which I kind of didn't know existed before. Like really, to me, that 1991 Palladium recording, which is what I believe I had on um, cassette when I was a kid, is the version of Joseph that I know. And I guess I'd always assumed that that's just what the show was. Yeah. So that one's available. Cool. To me, that is Joseph. I will also link to the 1993 Los Angeles cast recording, which is that like kind of the Broadway revival, like that cast went on to do the Broadway revival nice. in 1993. I quite like they do a bit more sort of the narrator makes some more interesting vocal choices and stuff in yeah. that one. So that's fun to listen to. That's cool. Um, but then like the original Cantata recording is on there. Oh, that is yeah. super cool. And also the 1973 West End recording, like when it was still a 35-minute show. So – it is very strange to listen to. It is very old-fashioned and not really the show that you know now. But if you're a Joseph, you know, nerd, you know, by all means listen to it. Yeah, that's cool. So some gateway songs. So I am going to go for, like, some of the bigger hits because I do think that, A, they're good standalone songs. And as much as, like, like Josephine said, like, you've probably heard them to death in your life and never yeah. want to hear them again, there's a reason that they're the songs that people know. So Any Dream Will Do is one of those. Uh. Um, close every door is the other. So my close. Have I told my close every door story on the podcast? No, I don't think so. So when I was a little kid, obviously like new, like obsessed mm-hmm. with this song. Um, it's I a was, beautiful song. So I was already young for my grade at school, and then I they skipped me a forward a grade in school. Yeah, and apparently I just hated. I hated being two years younger than everyone else, and it was it was this whole thing, and I was like coming home really de- like depressed at school and yeah. and mum always says like she knew the moment that I was really depressed because I would like sit at the piano and oh sing God. close every door to myself and just and like that was kind of the moment that she was like oh my god and they and they ended up putting me back down <laughs> that is the saddest story I've ever heard <laughs> not in the way that I feel sorry for you but like if you were my kid I'd be like let's make some money off this <laughs> hilarious so yeah that was sad me in like 94 oh Ruthie (laughs) that's so it's the perfect song to sing if you're sad though yeah right if you're in a prison yeah 
It's so perfect. Close every door. And then um, Go 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 Joseph, which is the act one finale. Yeah, that's a good song. Which is just like a really catchy. Such an earworm. Yeah. Um, that ends the that ends the first act is the other one that I've listed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's that one's hard. Like you could choose any song really. They're all very catchy. They're all pretty catchy. And there's not that many either. No. You get through it pretty quickly. You do. Lots of Except reprises. When you get to the Mega Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nine minutes. So long. So, yeah, that's Joseph. Ooh. Mm. I enjoyed that more than I thought I would. Okay. Mainly because you of kind your of, brevity, You, you I sort think. of made your mind up about Joseph. Yeah. And you've discovered some history that you yeah. didn't know. Yeah, the history was very interesting. Yeah. I just, I just, yeah, I, the idea that it's not the show that just I listened to in 91 yeah. hadn't been that way forever was quite mind-blowing to me this week. Yeah, that's really messed up my brain as yeah. well. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks, Ruth. That was refreshing. Yes. <laughs> she still hates the show. I still hate everything. Uh, thanks. Thank you, everyone at home, for listening to My Favourite Musical, the podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. Yeah, you can my send us an musical. email. Send us an email at myfavoritemusical at gmail.com. They can follow us on Twitter. My fave musical. Uh, what else can you do? You can leave us a review or rate. Would, that would be great. That'd or just, be awesome. Or just do whatever you want, whatever. And we've got, you know, we link every week to the playlist that has all of our Gateway songs on it. Yes, yeah, so you can listen, listen along. In the also, show notes. every Thursday we release a mixtape episode, which is just a little snappy episode so you get to listen to our voices again. Yeah. Lucky you. And we talk to you about something we like. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, or well, you'll hear us next week. Bye. Bye.